welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on July 17th, Lord's Day Service. words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we desire to sit at your feet. We desire for you to shape our outlook. So through the power of the Spirit, reveal to us the truth that our weak and short-sighted reason cannot comprehend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 139 verse 14 says that human beings are remarkably and wondrously made. And one of the difficult parts of Christianity is believing that without getting a swollen head. One of the oldest sins in the world is to think better of ourselves than we ought. And Jesus' mission in this section is to teach his disciples about the soul-ruining problem of misunderstanding greatness. And so they withdraw from public activity, and Jesus again foretells his coming death and resurrection. Verse 33 says the disciples still fail to understand what Jesus means. We see here that the disciples' thoughts are moving along quite different lines from Jesus' thoughts. While Jesus' eyes are fixed on martyrdom, The disciples are preoccupied with the question of status. They're arguing, in verse 34, about who will be the greatest. Now, why are they arguing about this? Why are they discussing this? Well, there's three reasons. First, Peter, James, and John are selected to witness the transfiguration, while the other disciples are not. Second, the other disciples are humiliated over their failed exorcism in verses 14 through 29. And third, their appetite for a high spot in the pecking order produced unchecked pride. So Jesus' response is that in order to be great, they must humble themselves like unworthy servants. The disciples still need to learn that the cost of the kingdom of God is ceasing to seek high places for themselves. Servanthood and self-denial are the only paths to true Christian greatness. 
And the 12 disciples aren't the only ones who need to learn this lesson. We need to learn this, this lesson as well. And so in this passage, Jesus is dispelling false notions of greatness and thereby teaching the disciples and teaching us important lessons about the kingdom of God. And so the question is, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Jesus gives us four answers to that question. So what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, first, you must be willing to be great. That's right. First, you must be willing to be great. And I realize that sounds like a strange point, but notice the disciples argue about who is the greatest, and Jesus does not tell them to stop desiring greatness. He tells them in verse 35, oh, what was that? You wanted to be great? All right, listen closely. I'll tell you exactly how to be great. And Jesus does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus gives explicit instructions about how to be great in God's kingdom. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we do need to be careful with this point, but Jesus does not discourage the desire for greatness. He doesn't say, oh, you want to be great? Stop wanting that. That's not how he handles the problem. Instead, Jesus teaches how to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, you want to be great? Listen carefully. Oh, you want to be first? I'll tell you exactly how to be first in God's kingdom. He doesn't tell them to stop desiring to be first. He doesn't tell them to stop desiring greatness. He says, here's how you be first. Here's how you be great in God's kingdom. Now, I said we have to be careful with this point. So let's take a moment to be careful. We must always remember that the sin nature's desire is for preeminence. It fills human beings. I mean, look at the disciples. Who would have thought that a few fishermen could be overcome for the desire for rank? If it can happen to them, it can happen to you. But Jesus' response assumes people want to be great. Jesus' response assumes people want to be first. And he doesn't put out the fire of their ambition to be great. He doesn't put out the fire for their desire to be first. Notice he redirects it. He sanctifies it. He takes their ambition and he uses their ambition to be great, their ambition to be first, as motivation for selflessness. And so is pride a common sin? Yes. Do people tend to think higher of themselves than they ought? Yes. Do people fancy that they deserve something better than they have? Again, the answer is yes. Pride is an old sin that began in the Garden of Eden, or I guess it began in heaven before the Garden of Eden, with Satan. We must not play games with this sin. But the way Jesus handles the disciples here is not by crushing their desire for greatness. He doesn't handle them by crushing their desire to be first. He doesn't crush their spirit. He sanctifies it. He sanctifies their desire. He instructs their desire. He catechizes their desire. And I think there's something here to be learned about how we raise our children. We must not crush their spirit for greatness. 
We must not crush their spirit. We must sanctify it. We must redirect it. Now, the reason we don't do that is because crushing their spirit's a lot quicker. Crushing their spirit's a lot easier because then they'll just comply. And that's why we don't do the work of sanctifying it. We don't want to crush their spirit. We want to sanctify it. We want to redirect it. We want to catechize it. And that's difficult work. And so the principle here is to redirect the desire for greatness away from winning man's approval, away from worldly preeminence, and toward God's approval, toward rewards in the kingdom of heaven. And so what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, first, you must be willing to be great. And second, you must be willing to be an unworthy servant. Look with me at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and Jesus said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So we see here that the kingdom of God has a standard for greatness. But it's a peculiar standard for greatness in the eyes of the world. To be great in God's kingdom, you must be last. You must be servant of all. And this is directly contrary to the world's idea of greatness. The world's idea of greatness is to be served. Christ's idea of greatness is to be servant of all. And so Jesus' idea is directly contrary to the world's ambition. The world's idea of ambition is to receive all the honor and all the attention. The Christian ambition is to give rather than receive. So how do we do this? How do we serve? How do we be last of all, as Jesus instructs us in verse 35? And the answer is not to lose your convictions. The answer is not to lose your convictions. You may doubt yourself, but you must never doubt the truth. There's nothing honoring to the Lord about doubting the truth of God and the truth of Scripture. Chesterton pointed out that modern man doubts what is true and asserts himself and calls that humility. And that new humility is running rampant in the evangelical church today. This new humility, this false humility, this fake humility pretends to be so modest that you know, I'm not even sure if the multiplication table is true. In other words, this fashionable version of humility, this new version of humility, you can see it on display at the Oscars. This version of humility is basically compliance with relativism. The new version of humility would never stand on convictions that something is true or not true. The new version of humility, the fashionable version of humility, would never say Jesus is the only way, and I know it for sure. We have to understand that's not really humility. Relativism is not humility, or something approaching relativism is not humility. That doesn't make you last of all. Agnosticism is not humility. So back to the question, how do we serve? Like Jesus says in verse 35, how do we be last of all? Well, the first thing you must do is keep your convictions fully intact. You do not honor the Lord by denying the truth of your convictions. That's not humility. That's not being last of all. So first, keep your convictions fully intact. And second, you need to avoid the trick where you shrewdly position yourself to receive the praise of others. 
In other words, in order to be great, you must position yourself to serve others even if it doesn't earn you the praise of others. And you know how we do this. We, we, we serve others in such a way that we know will be noticed, we know will be seen, and we crave the praise that will come when people notice that I served. But that's not really what you need to be going for here. You need to position yourself to serve others even if it doesn't bring you praise. That's true self-sacrifice here. And this will never happen until you crucify your impulse towards self-exaltation. This will never happen if your mission every day is to make others decrease so that you can increase in the eyes of those around you. But once you diminish the desire for self-exaltation, then you will be able to bless as many people as possible, not worrying about if that's going to get you some praise or not. And that's the real meaning of verse 35. And so what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, first, you must be willing to be great. And second, you must be willing to be an unworthy servant. And third, you must be willing to occupy the lowest place. Look with me at verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, first off, don't get confused, because this is not the passage where Jesus says, unless you turn and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a different passage. We'll get to that in Mark 10. This is, this is something different here. Here, Jesus is telling them that whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So why does he tell them to receive children? And really, it's babies. He, he takes this child in his arms and holds them like, like you do with a baby. So, so why is Jesus saying you need to receive children? You need to receive babies. Well, let's think about it. An infant in the first century world was not admired. An infant in the first century world was not given any sort of special dignity. And even today, really, an infant is not really admired in the eyes of the world. I mean, sure, you and I think they're cute and cuddly. But in the eyes of the first century Roman world, babies are not strong, they're not skillful, they're not competent, and they're not self-sufficient. And so picture the scene. In verse 35, Jesus tells them that if you want to be great, you have to be servant of all. Then in verse 36, Jesus takes a baby in his arms and says in verse 37 that whoever receives this baby in my name receives me. And so you have to understand that verses 36 and 37 are elaborating on verse 35. How do you be servant of all? Well, you even care for those people that no one wants to care for, like this little baby, because that's how they viewed it in the first century Roman world. And so we should be willing to serve and receive into our lives the weak and the needy and the lesser. This is the life of servanthood that Jesus is calling us Two, we must be willing to occupy the lowest place, caring for those, in this context, babies in the first century Roman world, caring for those that no one else really thinks is that admirable. And so if you are willing to give attention to the children, if you're willing to give attention to the babies, Jesus says you will be first in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' answer cuts against the world's ordinary path 
to greatness. I mean, flesh and blood can see no other way to greatness than crowns and rank and wealth and followers and likes and power. But listen to what Jesus says here. The Son of God declares that true greatness comes by devoting ourselves to care for the weakest and lowest of his flock. So verse 35, Jesus says, you must be servant of all. And verses 36 and 37, Jesus says, and that includes children. And that includes babies. To quote Chesterton again, he said, the best men devote themselves to pigs and babies and things like that. So I want to talk to you men for a moment. Chesterton himself said, men devote themselves to babies. And you might think, well, you know, I've got, I've got these little children, and it's, it's my wife. She's, she's the primary caretaker of the children, especially when they're young. And so, you know, when I come home, it's been a long day. And really, they need to be just kind of, you know, stowed away in the back, kept quiet. You know, because it's not really my primary responsibility to worry about these babies. But men, you have to understand, you must devote yourself to your babies. You cannot hide them away in the back room until they're older and can do cool stuff. No, you must take the babies in your arms just like Jesus took the baby in his arms. You must make funny faces at that child. You must look into their eyes. You must listen to their chats. You must get on the floor and play with them. And you might think, well, you know, women are better at that stuff. And when they get older, I'm going you know, to really mold and shape that child. When they're capable of rational thought, when they can follow, I've got some cool syllogisms for them. I'm going to really spend time with the kid. But you have to understand that if you don't get on the floor and play with them now, and if you don't listen to their chats now, they may not want to spend time with you when they're older. They're going to have been trained on how this relationship works. If you don't listen to them now, they may not want to listen to you then. And so... Fathers, you need to take your babies in your arms. They are not a hindrance to your life. They are a blessing. Jesus took the babies in his arms, and you need to do the same. You must make time for your children. You must not look down on them or despise them or wait for them to get older so they can do cool stuff. And in verse 37, there are two things Jesus says about caring for children. First, you must care for children in Jesus' name. It says, whoever receives one such child in my name, which means the will of Jesus is not that you minister to children. The will of Jesus is that you minister to children in Jesus' name. The second thing in verse 37 in caring for children is that we do it with a longing to experience more of Jesus and more of the Heavenly Father. Look at it, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. In other words, when Jesus calls you to be servant of all, which includes children, which includes babies, he's not necessarily calling you to a task that's going to earn you heaps of praise and attention from men. He's calling you to stop trying to receive man's praise and start receive God's approval and Christ's approval in the service of your children. 
And so to you mothers who are faithfully fulfilling your motherly duty by raising your children in the name of Jesus, your hard work might not earn you an award from the academy, but it will mean, according to verse 37, that you receive Jesus. And not just Jesus, you receive the heavenly Father. That's what it says in verse 37. And so what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? First, you must be willing to be great. Second, you must be willing to be an unworthy servant. Third, you must be willing to occupy the lowest place and even care for the babies. And fourth, you must be willing to flee self-importance. Jesus' words in verse 35 go against every instinct of self-importance that is common to mankind. Listen to it again in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the sin nature's instinct is self-importance. That's why children who haven't yet learned the virtue of self-denial, that's why they're always racing to the front of the line, that's why they're always doing things that suggest, look at me, look at me. That's why children, when it's their brother and sister's birthday and they're getting a lot of attention, they're over here doing something to, to try to redirect everyone's attention back to them. The sin nature's instinct is that kind of self-importance. And that's why teenagers who haven't yet learned the virtue of self-denial. By the way, a lot of teenagers have learned the virtue of self-denial. They're a tremendous blessing. But teenagers who haven't learned the virtue of self-denial, you ever notice there's a, there's a gaggle of teenagers talking, and it's much louder than when another group of people is talking. Do you know why that is? It's because they're all talking over each other. Why are they doing that? Well, it's because what matters is what I'm going to say. See, the sin nature's instinct is that kind of self-importance. And that's why so many adults still act like children, still act like teenagers, who haven't learned the virtue of self-denial. So what is self-importance? Well, let's start here in verse 34. According to verse 34, self-importance is arguing that I am the greatest. It's going Muhammad Ali on you. I'm the greatest. Self-importance is arguing, I'm the best. I'm the most important. In Mark chapter 12, verse 38, self-importance is when you wear clothes that draw attention to yourself and behave in a way that makes you appear better than or different from others. In Mark chapter 12, verse 39, self-importance is when you insist on the best seat in the synagogue and the place of honor at feasts. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 13, self-importance is a behavior of a false, deceitful, and disguising person. According to 3 John, verse 9, self-importance is when you put yourself first and rebel against the authority of the apostles. And the problem of self-importance exists not only in the world, but it exists in the church. And it, and it manifests when someone would rather be a general in a losing cause for Christ than be a private in a winning cause for Christ. Self-importance is when people think, well, you know, I hate that I lost, but at least I'm still in charge. Self-importance is the player on the losing team who says, yeah, we lost, but who cares? I scored three touchdowns. And self-importance is so common 
in our culture that it's often overlooked, it's kind of routine, it's permitted, you know, because kids will be kids, and adults today act like kids. But Jesus is clear. Self-importance ought not to be an attribute of Christians. And repentance means preferring to be a sergeant in a victory for Christ rather than a general in a loss for Christ. Repentance means supporting your teammates after a hard game rather than blaming them, even if they're to blame. Repentance means training your kids how to deny themselves and seek the good of their neighbor before seeking their own good, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Repentance means following the valorized example of Moses, who according to Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, gave up rank, greatness, carnal pleasure, and riches because he preferred the reward of God over the praise of man. And as you consider fleeing self-importance, you need to realize you're fleeing tyranny. You're fleeing the tyranny of the self. The lie of the world is that that kind of self-importance leads to your happiness, but that's a lie. It's, it's tyranny. You're fleeing the tyranny of self. And the self-centered person makes imperious demands upon others. The self-centered person has an insatiable appetite for everyone's attention. And for the self-centered person, if there's any room for God, it comes from just whatever worldly advantage having God might bring them. Christ's teaching is that when you follow him, when you live in his grace with the Holy Spirit, you put yourself in a position to be free from the tyranny of that kind of self-importance. You put yourself in a position where you might receive no recognition or trophy or visibility or praise. And yet, you still have joy in Christ for having served. That is the vision of self-denial that Jesus is casting here. And it's modeled in his life, death, and resurrection. And when you live that out in the power of the Spirit, you'll find, you'll find that you're free from the tyranny of self. And so, in conclusion, you can't be first because God is first. And learning to live in God's kingdom is not just to remember that God is first, but it's to learn to love the fact that God is first, and therefore you can't be first. Living in God's kingdom is to learn to love the fact that since God is first in rank, you can't be first in rank, and since God is first in honor, you can't be first in honor. And if the Messiah, who is first, submitted himself to rejection and suffering, then the Messiah's followers must be willing to do the same. I think that's the connection back to verses 30 through 32. We must take on a mindset where we are not too high for a mission that involves cross-bearing and self-sacrifice, both of which were modeled by our Lord. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus models what he teaches. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the agent of of creation, the conqueror of Satan, the inheritor of the world, and his mission was to suffer and be rejected by his own people. We can't expect to be treated better than Jesus, so we don't demand the best seat at the synagogue or a seat of honor at the feast because at the marriage supper of the Lamb we will sit at Christ's table and therein we will have fullness of joy forevermore.
Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Thank you.